How shall young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer as normal. This is important for our spiritual life because uh, the Christian life is a relationship with God. And when we send that relationship, that ongoing rapport with God, that fellowship with God is broken. And in order to repair it, to recover, we are to confess our sins, which simply means to admit or to acknowledge our sins to him. And when we do so, he not only uh, forgives us of the sins we name, but he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And that means that all the other sins that we've committed that we ignored or forgotten about or didn't know were sins are, are, are also wiped clean so that we have a full restoration of our relationship with God so that we can resume our our spiritual life, our spiritual momentum, and our advance towards spiritual maturity. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so very grateful, so very thankful that we have a relationship with you for, indeed, you are the center of our life, the center of our Christian life. You are the focus. You are the beginning of our life and the end toward which we move as we come to know you, and that, as Paul says uh, to the Athenians, that in you we have our life and our breath, and everything is, is related to you. Now, Father, we pray that this might become very real to us as we continue the study in First Thessalonians, and especially as we come to understand the issues that the Apostle Paul addresses and references <clears throat> in these initial chapters related to the spiritual life, the spiritual walk of the believer. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in First Thessalonians chapter 1. And it may have been some time since we had the last lesson, but in the previous lesson we focused on the first verse 3 of chapter 1. Paul writes, I'll read the first few verses, Paul, Silvanus, which is the Latin form of Silas, and Timothy. Remember, Silas and Timothy were Paul's traveling companions on his second missionary journey. It was on that second missionary journey that the Apostle Paul crossed from Asia, what we would call the continent of Asia now, Asia Minor, which is Turkey, uh, the Roman province of Asia, where he took a, a ship from Troas across to uh, uh, across to uh, uh, Macedonia. And, and visited and established the churches in Philippi and then in Thessalonica. And so he's writing this epistle. And Silas and Timothy were his traveling companions. And so he is addressing the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. After he left there, and remember he was only there a fairly short time, maybe two or three months, and because of opposition from the apostate Jewish community, a number of Jews did respond to his, uh, to his gospel and to the teaching that Jesus was the Messiah, but there were many others who, among whom that generated a, a fierce opposition. 
he and he had to leave rapidly, and so he sent uh, Timothy and Silas back later on to visit the churches in Macedonia, to visit Philippi, and to visit Thessalonica, and to make sure that the believers there were being well established. Now, the English word established is used several times in these epistles, and it translates uh, two or three different synonyms in Greek, indicating that they're being strengthened, uh, their their foundation is is being laid in terms of sound doctrine and sound application. When uh, Silas and Timothy rejoined Paul in Corinth, they brought with them questions, concerns, confusion on the part of these young believers in Thessalonica, and so Paul is writing this to answer those. He addresses them in the salutation by saying, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and immediately goes into uh, a statement of his gratitude to God, which reflects his prayer life. And and Paul had a, a tremendous prayer life. And in the last couple of lessons, I've emphasized the importance of that prayer life and that we, too, should have a prayer life like Paul's and like that of the Lord Jesus Christ. In this lesson, I'm going to wrap up what I've been teaching about a prayer, and we're going to move on into a new topic as a background for this introduction, uh, dealing with a, a somewhat review for some folks, but it's going to be new for some other people, and that has to do with the basic spiritual skills of the Christian of the Christian life, and that is to enable us to fulfill uh, the command that Paul gives, or, or the statement that Paul makes, rather, in verse 6, where he says, and you, that is, you as the Thessalonian believers, you became followers of us. And followers, that's the King James, New King James word, but what you have in the in the Greek is the word mimetes, where we get our English word mimic. They became imitators of us and of the Lord. Paul, when Paul talks about imitating him, which he mentions a few times, he always uses that in the context of being an, as far as he is following Christ, not imitating Paul in terms of his carnality or his sin nature, but imitating him in terms of his priorities of the spiritual life and the virtues of the spiritual life that are being developed within him through God the Holy Spirit. So that as a mature believer, by looking at the Apostle Paul, uh, he's talking about the fact that they could see Christ being formed in him. And that should be true for all of us as we grow to maturity, that as people see us, they see the character of Christ. They see those those virtues that, that I've mentioned last time, and we'll look at it a little bit more today, of, of faith, hope, and love. They see the character of Christ formed in us through the fruit of, of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5, 21 and 22. So uh, this is about that, that imitation, and Paul shows how and why we should pray. And he says, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God the Father. 
Now, we've looked at this first map showing the broad view of Paul's second missionary journey, and the area, the, the area of Macedonia is indicated in the yellow. Uh, Corinth, the place from which he wrote this epistle, is down south on the uh, Peloponnesian Peninsula, known as Achaia, which was uh, ancient Greece proper, and Corinth is located uh, on the... Uh, Isthmus of Corinth located right right here. Uh, this is a little closer view of Thessalonica in the north, Macedonia. It's on the Ignatian Way, the Via Ignatia, which is the main uh, Roman highway uh, from east to west, connecting the Adriatic with the Aegean major trade route. As we looked at prayer in the past, I pointed out that there are uh, four parts. I've summarized the last two usually under the term supplication. Supplication involves two aspects. One involves intercession for others. The uh, second involves petition for oneself. If we just summarize those two parts as S for supplication, then we have a um, an acronym, CAT, C-A-T-S, Confession, Adoration, Thanksgiving, Intercession for Others, and Petition for Oneself. Now, in the last couple of lessons, what I've done is to look at how uh, Paul prays, to look at examples of Paul and of the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of each of these elements. Of course, confession did not apply to the Lord Jesus Christ, but it did to Paul. And we looked at these different elements. And I just want to say a couple of things related to uh, petition for self. Petition for self uh, is basically what we can gain from looking at how Paul prayed for others. Those are the things that we should be praying for for ourselves, praying that the eyes of our soul, the eyes of our understanding might be opened, uh, that we might be growing to spiritual maturity, praying for strength in our spiritual life, strength to face uh, the adversities uh, that are ours. Uh, also in terms of being able to execute what we believe to be God's plan. And Paul very much uh, believed that it was God's plan for him to go to Rome, but he was hindered in many ways, but he continued to pray that he would finally get to Rome. And so this was part of his prayer. And we learned something there is that God doesn't uh, necessarily answer our prayers immediately or according to our timetable. Paul had intended to go to Rome several times, but he was hindered. And it's interesting that the word that Paul uses for that hindrance in Romans 1 is the same word that Paul had used in describing the hindrance of God the Holy Spirit at the beginning of his second missionary journey when he sought to go into Asia, the Roman province of Asia, and he was blocked, and, and, and the Holy Spirit prevented him from going into Bithynia and Pontus, and the Holy Spirit was, through various circumstances, blocking uh, his, his travel so that he was going in the direction where the Holy Spirit intended. And eventually, Paul did get to Asia. He got to Ephesus, and he taught there for two to two and a half years and established his training center out of a school there called the School of Tyrannus. And from there, he sent out evangelists and missionaries that took the gospel all over the uh, western part of what is now modern Turkey, the Roman province of Asia, and established dozens and dozens of churches and converted hundreds, if not thousands, of individuals to Christianity, established an extremely strong church base there that lasted for a couple of centuries. 
So Romans 10, 1, 10 is an example of one of Paul's petitions where he is praying to God, making requests, if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. Now Paul wrote Romans, the epistle to the Romans, from Ephesus during that two and a half, two to two and a half year stay when he was in Ephesus, and as of yet he had not had the opportunity to get to Rome, and it took some time. In fact, there's going to be a third missionary journey, uh, and then finally he goes to Jerusalem where he's arrested, spends two years under uh, under arrest in Caesarea by the sea, Caesarea Maritima. Then he goes on a ship. He's shipwrecked. Eventually he got to Rome, but it took took him at least another three years, maybe four, from the time he was in he wrote this in Ephesus before he eventually arrived uh in Rome. Uh, there are many things that we pray for. It's easy to see what we pray for for ourselves in terms of petition. We pray for things we want. We pray for positive circumstances. We pray uh, often to, for the avoidance of affliction. Affliction and suffering and adversity become a major part of the of what Paul is teaching in uh, in Thessalonians. In First uh, Thessalonians one six, he says. Uh, praising them that you became followers of us, he says, or imitators of us and of Christ, having received the word in much affliction or much adversity. The Greek word there is thlipsis, which relates to uh, open opposition that they faced in Thessalonica. In fact, he uses the word again and as a, a as a verb in chapter three, verse four, thlibo. He uses, it says, for in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation, suffer adversity just as it happened and just as you know. So there, there's this a constant thing in the background of dealing with adversity. As Christians, we live in the devil's world, and as a result of your living in the devil's world, things often do not go the way we want, the way we hope, and we have to get our our, our mental attitude around that, that, that our time on this earth is not for our personal pleasure. It's not for our personal comfort. It's not for our personal success in terms of, of the way the world looks at it, but it is in terms of our opportunity to serve the Lord because every believer is a missionary to the world. Every believer is an ambassador to Christ. Each and every one of us is, as a believer has a mission and that part of that mission is to imitate Christ, to be an example by our life and by our lips, by what we do and what we say about the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first thing that we have to do, our first uh, mission is to grow to spiritual maturity. You know, it's funny, some people think that when they hear about spiritual maturity and they look at the Apostle Paul or they look at some other biblical figures, they they seem disconnected because we don't seem to be able to get to that level of spiritual maturity. In fact, I heard a lady once uh, comment, and this was a woman who had been listening to sound biblical teaching for much of her life. Uh, at this time, she was in her probably late 60s, and she had been sitting under some really solid Bible teaching for probably 30 or 40 years. And she made the comment that she thought getting to spiritual maturity was impossible. 
And I commented, I said, well, Paul expected the Corinthians to be at spiritual maturity within a couple of years. If you think it's impossible, it's because you're probably living in carnality most of the time and you really haven't gotten that. You know, you, you've barely gotten to home plate to get a hit and all you're doing is swinging strikes and you probably ought to think about it. That didn't endear me to her. Um, but that's the problem. A lot of people think that, that just by going to Bible class, just by taking notes, just by learning, uh, a, a pastor's vocabulary and the verbiage and being able to restate some of those things that somehow they're on the way to spiritual growth. But spiritual growth has to do with internalizing or assimilating the truth and making it part of your life where it changes us from the inside out. And too many people just play too many games with God along the way, and they never see that kind of change. But here is this group of believers in Thess- uh, Thessalonica, and by this time they haven't been believers for very long at all, less than a year by the time Timothy catches up with uh, Timothy and Silas catch up with Paul and tell him what's been going on. And notice how he, uh, the Apostle Paul expresses their spiritual growth in verse 3. He says, remembering without ceasing your three things he mentioned, your work of faith, second, your labor of love, and third, your patience of hope. Faith, hope, and love here connected in the same passage uh, we have this mention, this, this group of three, uh, Christian virtues mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 13. This is what endures during the church age. We'll look at that passage, excuse me, in just a minute. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God our Father. And let me submit that what I think he is mentioning here is summarizing their advance in the spiritual life under these three key terms for the the virtues that are developed in our spiritual growth. And let me suggest that this has only been a period of six or eight months, but they have understood the issues, and they're going forward, and they're pursuing spiritual maturity. They're blasting out of spiritual infancy and spiritual adolescence into spiritual maturity, and it's only been a short time because they have applied themselves uh, to the Word. And they're, they're not playing games with it. They're, they understand that they are in a cultural conflict, uh, with the world system around them. And so, so they are setting themselves apart in terms of their obedience to the word. Now, one thing we need to clarify is the sense of these genitival phrases. The key that they're genitives in the English is that you see that little preposition of. So the word faith, love, and hope in this passage in the Greek are all genitives. And a genitive can have a number of different meanings. Uh, sometimes it can have something of an adjectival meaning. Sometimes it can have the sense of, of, of source or origin. Uh, there, grammars list about 20 to 20, depending on the grammar you look at, 20 to 25 different nuances or shades of meaning that are present in, in a genitive. So I have expanded the translation a little bit uh, in this slide to give us a sense of what is um, Paul is talking about here. And I think that these are generally gen- uh, genitives of source. So he's remembering their work that's generated 
from their faith. It is their trust in God. This is what we call the faith rest drill. Now, recently I had someone in the church who's fairly new to the congregation, uh, not that new, but fairly new, and asked me after, uh, I think it may have even been after the last lesson was shown, not long after it, he asked me, uh, what does it mean, what does this term the faith rest drill mean? And and that really caught my attention because uh, about the same time or within a week or two, somebody else in the congregation had been listening to some of the uh, James audio messages from about 15 years ago and was asking questions about the spiritual skills. And I believe that these terms, faith, hope, and love, can summarize the entire spiritual life as expressed through the spiritual skills, 10 spiritual skills that I've taught before. I developed these earlier in my ministry in uh, the Epistle of James in the first, in the series on First John, developed some more in Hebrews. I haven't uh, used it as much in the last uh, few years because we've been focusing on other other doctrines and other issues. But in First Thessalonians, we're going to come back to this quite a bit, and it's to me, it's such a great rubric for understanding the Christian life. It, it pulls together all the dynamics, all the mandates and everything, and it summarizes them in a great pedagogical tool uh, for understanding what God has provided for us. And so that's what I want to do in this lesson. Now, some of you are going to maybe yawn a little bit because uh, you've heard this quite a bit, but there are quite a few people who are newer to the ministry, newer to the congregation, and this material is not as 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 uh, as familiar to them as it needs to be. So, first of all, there's work generated by your faith. Faith it has to do with two kinds of faith when we when we're in in the scriptures. The first is saving faith. Faith basically basically means to trust or to believe something is true, to accept it as true, to receive it as part of yourself. This is where you have imagery in in the Gospels where Jesus talks about uh, uh, eating his flesh, drinking his blood, that that has to do with uh, taking something in. When we eat something, it becomes a part of our nature. It, it's assimilated within us. We've accepted it. We've received it. So these are terms that are uh, that relate to salvation we trust Christ as our savior but after we trust Christ as our savior we move on to faith in relation to the christian life and faith in relation to the christian life is a day-to-day activity where we are choosing to trust in the promises and provisions of god trust in his word and we mix our faith with the word of God, the promises of God's word. And that's what we mean by the faith rest drill. Actively trusting God. Faith is something we choose to do. We choose to believe. And then we rest in God's provision. We do our part and rest in God's provision to do uh, the remainder. And often faith involves application. It's not just a matter of I believe that's true in some sort of uh, disjunctive uh, uh, academic sort of sense, but <clears throat> I believe it's true, and therefore it's going to uh, entail certain changes in the way I think and the way I live. And that's what Paul's talking about here, the work that is their ministry toward one another, their ministry in terms of uh, a, 
expressing the gospel, evangelizing others in uh, Thessalonica, as well as service in the local church. And this is generated by their faith because they are trusting in God. They're trusting in the Word. What they're learning about the Word is impacting the way they live. So the first thing that's expressed has to do with their the impact of their faith in God and in the Scriptures and what how that changes their life. The second has to do with their love, their labor, motivated by their love for God. Uh, in the, the te- text, remember, just says labor of love, but it's love towards whom? Ultimately, it's love toward God that motivates our love towards one another. It is a labor of love because it involves uh, getting involved in events, getting involved in people's lives, helping people, serving one another, getting involved in... Uh, uh, putting into practice the the statements of God's word, so their labor motivated by their love for God. Love for God doesn't happen instantly. Love for God is something that is developed over time. A newborn baby doesn't have a great love for the parents. But as you feed the baby, feed the child that grows and you develop that relationship, a childlike love develops. But that's very different from the kind of love that an adult has. And so we see a kind of love in the infant believer. But as that believer grows, that love matures, and as the believer reaches a certain stage, that love for God is the, the rich love of a mature child of God, and that love becomes a motivational factor in his further advance in the Christian life, and especially in relation to his love for one another. And then the third category that Paul mentions here is their patience of hope, and I've translated that perseverance of hope because it's uh, the concept there is hupomones, which has to do with endurance, and endurance has to do with our expectation of the future. We understand where we're going. This is what uh, James is talking about in James chapter one when he says, "Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith—that's adversity—the testing of your faith produces hupomones, endurance." Uh, endurance and endurance is related to hope because we understand the end game. We know where God's taking us. We know what God's producing in us and we understand that by that uh, facing and handling those challenges in life on the basis of God's word that God is developing a maturity within us and he is bringing us into a position where we can then fully glorify him as a mature believer. So the perseverance is produced by our confident expectation, our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God, uh, of our God and Father. Now these three virtues of the Christian life are also mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse uh, 13. Now turn with me just back a few pages in your Bible to 1 Corinthians, and I want to set the context of this just a little bit so you can understand why this is such an important verse. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is often referred to as the love chapter because the first seven verses 
<clears throat> talk about the the the, the virtue, the uh, ongoing virtue and value of love, and the characteristics of love. But then the the the, the qualities of love as an enduring, everlasting virtue contrasted with some temporary spiritual gifts and begins with three spiritual gifts that are mentioned, uh, knowledge, prophecy, and tongues. Knowledge and prophecy are, are viewed as partial. Tongues is not said to be partial. Different verbs, different characteristics are stated uh, that apply to tongues. Uh, verse 8 says that love never fails. That's the opening of this paragraph, and at the end, we're told that the greatest of these, the greatest of faith, hope, and love, uh, is love. And so it, this passage is really all about love, but it's a contrast of love with that which which is permanent, with that which is impermanent. And you really have two groups of temporary things. The first has to do with temporary spiritual gifts, revelatory gifts, prophecy, and uh, knowledge, and then sign gifts represented by tongues. We're told that uh, these uh, partial gifts, prophecy and knowledge, will be uh, replaced by something that is called the completed thing, or usually translated the perfect, which is very confusing, and it refers to the completion of the canon of Scripture, completion of divine revelation. What's partial are revelatory gifts, so what is going to complete the partial must be of the same kind. So we're not talking about uh, something else. We're talking about the same kind of thing, so the perfect that completes the partial uh, it must be revelatory. And so there's various arguments, and I've gone into these in other places, that talk about uh, the Scripture uh, for example, in James 1, that the Scripture is complete. It's also called the perfect there. You have an analogy of the mirror, all of those things. But the point here is that that knowledge and prophecy are temporary. Tongues also will cease and will end. Uh, and that prophecy and knowledge cease when the completed comes. Now, that's not the future with Christ because we're going to, as we see, is faith is something that's limited to this life. Hope is limited to this life. Only love continues into the eternal state. We walk now, as we'll see in um, second, second Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith and not by sight, but in heaven we'll be walking by sight. So faith continues beyond uh, the the uh, cessation of of uh, prophecy and knowledge. Hope also continues beyond the cessation of prophecy and knowledge, uh, so that through most of the church age, faith, hope, and love endure. That's the point that Paul is making here. So the first thing we see is in chapter 13, there is a contrast between the permanent and the and that which is impermanent. And that first division focuses on faith, hope, and love are permanent in in time, in this life, whereas prophecy and knowledge will cease at some stage, and we believe that occurred early in the first century, or late in the first century when, early in the church age, but in the fir- late in the first century when uh, the canon of Scripture was completed. But then when Paul ends, he says, but now... Now that is now after faith and hope have been, I mean, excuse me, now after, after knowledge and prophecy have been abolished, 
what continues? Faith, hope, and love continue in the church age, but the greatest of these is love. So these are the the three valuable virtues for development in the Christian life. So let's talk about these, and then I want to tie them back to the principles that I've taught in the past related to the ten spiritual skills. This is, as I said, just kind of an overview. It's a good summary for those of you who have gone through uh, much of this with me in the past to remind you that uh, maybe you need to get off the dime and start moving forward in terms of your use of these spiritual skills. And also a reminder to some of you who are new that you need to learn some of these things. And maybe like some of the other uh, new folks in the congregation, you need to go back and listen to some of these earlier series that are just in audio format. These were done before we had video, uh, before um, uh, especially First John and James when I was still up in uh, Connecticut uh, before we had the video capability. But now we're going to look at these in terms of these three elements. So just think of them, faith, hope, and love. Faith summarizes your basic development in the spiritual life. Hope is adolescence, and, and love has to do with reaching spiritual maturity. So the first of these is faith. Second <clears throat> Corinthians 5.7 Paul says we walk by faith and not by sight. Now, the first thing we we note is that walking is a term that is frequently used to describe the way of life, the Christian way of life, and how we proceed. Walk is a term that emphasizes a moment-by-moment, step-by-step advance forward, and so it's an appropriate metaphor for uh, Christian growth and Christian advance. Now, how do we walk? Well, there are various different ways in which this is described in Scripture. We walk by means of the Spirit. We walk in truth. We walk in the light. All of these are roughly describing the same thing from different facets and different vantage points. Here we're talking about the foundational uh, <clears throat> the foundational virtue, which is faith, trusting in the Word of God, walking by means of faith, and it's not by means of sight. In other words, where the focus of our faith is in the Word of God. Now, ultimately, all systems of knowledge operate on faith, whether it's rationalism or empiricism or mysticism. And, and in those systems of, of learning, those systems of knowledge, faith is focused on human ability, the hum, faith in rationalism, there's a faith in human intellectual ability to, to know truth on its own apart from God. Empiricism is that we're going to know on the basis of sight, on the basis of what we see, hear, taste, touch, feel, and experience. Uh, mysticism is based on a faith in our feelings, faith that, in our intuitions that somehow we intuit truth. Uh, but Christianity says that we walk by faith, and what that means is faith in the Word of God, uh, trusting in what God says is true, and that God's word is more true than what we, uh, than the conclusions we arrive at on the basis of reason alone, or experience alone, or our inner feelings. We walk by means of faith, that is, trust in God's word. Uh, faith here may also be, in a, in a sense, referred to that body of beliefs or the body of doctrine that we uh, hold as true as Christians, Christian doctrine. We walk by means of, of of what we believe, not by sight. So we have <clears throat> three levels of growth. 
spiritual infancy, spiritual adolescence, and spiritual adulthood. Now, John talks about these as spiritual babes, spiritual young men, and spiritual men using three different terms in 1 John. Uh, spiritual t- childhood is represented by the term uh, technon. These are spiritual children, and it's also summarized in the basis, basic uh, mode of operation here, which is faith. Uh, faith sort of summarizes these these uh, five skills. Now, the reason I call them skills is because a skill is something you, you learn and something you acquire. It's not something that just happens overnight. Some people are more... Uh, 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 more easily adapt these things than others, just like any kind of skill. Some people have an affinity for woodwork. Some people have an affinity for automobile mechanics. Some people have an affinity for intellectual pursuits. But everybody has to learn the basic how-tos of anything. You, You may have a talent in dancing, but you have to go through those rigorous years of training where you work on learning each movement and breaking them down into each individual component. You have to uh, exercise, stretch muscles. There's all kinds of things that go into that, whether it's a, whether it's dance or, or music. If you play the piano, you play violin, you play a, a wind instrument, you have to work on learning all of the basic techniques that are involved. And in learning those techniques, it's often not very... Uh, melodious or very pretty, but you're just learning those basic skills. I remember when I was in high school, I was in a band and played trombone, and everybody in the band, we had a, a, a pretty good band director, and in order to advance, in order to get our grade, we had to work through a certain number of technique exercises and get signed off on uh, as we as we advanced, and so we would go in, and we had these technique books we would play, and they were basically teaching drills they, and, and uh, playing notes very fast, slow, uh, different things of that nature in order to develop the musculature uh, of our, of our lips, called an embouchure, and um, and this was important, and it wasn't exciting. I mean, you 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 weren't playing a tune, you weren't playing a melody, you weren't playing something that you uh, would want to dance to or get excited about. It was just playing these rudimentary exercises. Same thing with piano, doing just basic finger drills. And as you did that, though, it trained the muscles in your fingers or trained the muscles in your mouth or whatever in order to accomplish those things. That's what a skill is. And athletes do it. You get a football player. He's out there practicing tackle drills or practicing running drills and throwing and catching over and over and over again. You take somebody who is into uh, uh, various uh, shooting exercises. You just go through those drills over and over and over again until the right actions become embedded in muscle memory so that when you face certain uh, situations, then that, that drill that you've been going through just sort of takes over. So we have to develop these drills in our life in order to go forward as believers. And the first drill is confession. 
because confession is our means of recovery when we sin. If we stay out of fellowship, we're just going to be walking according to the flesh, as Paul says in uh, Galatians chapter 5, verses uh, 16 and following. And the flesh wars against the spirit. We're not going to get anywhere when we're walking like a spiritually dead person. So we have to recover. So whenever you sin, you need to immediately uh, as soon as you realize it, confess or admit, acknowledge that sin to God. But that doesn't get you anywhere. It only gets you a recovery so that you can go somewhere. In football, this would be like recovering a fumble. Uh, recovering a fumble may not get you a, a good field position. It's not going to move you down the field. It simply means you now uh, get the ball and you get to go back on offense uh, away from defense. Confession just gets you back in fellowship. It doesn't move you forward. A lot of people have misunderstood this over the years, and they think that as long as they keep confessing their sin, that somehow the Holy Spirit is just going to take over and move them spiritually, and they won't have to make those hard decisions of saying no to their sin nature. But that, that, that's a dream world. That, that is quasi-mysticism, and that is an extremely distorted and destructive way of thinking about the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Confession just gets us back to a place where we can go forward. It doesn't move us anywhere. What moves us is these two things. The FHS stands for the filling by means of the Holy Spirit, and the WHS talks about walking. Now, some people emphasize the filling aspect, and that's good, but that's passive. The command in Ephesians 5.18 is to be filled. That is simply we need to allow ourselves to receive what the Holy Spirit fills us with, which is his word. It's a passive verb. It's a passive concept. The active voice verb that, that tells us what the action plan is, is Ephesians 5.18, excuse me, Galatians 5.16, which is to walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. To walk by that, that's the command, to walk in dependence upon God the Holy Spirit. That's the positive action side of being filled by means of God the Holy Spirit. And these two things go together. When you confess your sin, we're back in fellowship so that then we can resume that forward momentum of walking in dependence upon God the Holy Spirit and being receptive to the Word of God. When we're out of fellowship and walking according to the sin nature, we're not producing anything of eternal value. You can sit in Bible class and take notes until you're, you wear your pens or pencils to a nub until, you, until you're worn out. You can memorize scripture. You can pray. You can do all kinds of things, but it's all in the power of the flesh and has no eternal value whatsoever. And so we have to learn to get back in fellowship, and then that's not enough. We move forward. But these two things work together. We get back in fellowship so we can walk by the Spirit. Another term that's used to describe this is abiding in Christ. All of these refer to the same basic idea. We stay in fellowship. We abide in Christ. We walk by means of the Spirit. We walk in the light and walk in His Word. Now, how do we do that? What are the mechanics for walking by the Holy Spirit. Well, in terms of basic dynamics in the Christian life, this is what we see in the next three spiritual skills. The foundation for them uh, is in the first one, the faith rest drill. We're trusting in God's Word. We're resting in Him. Uh, we're doing what He says to do because we believe it to be true. 
And it's also related to these two other skills, grace orientation and doctrinal orientation. Let's just talk a little bit about about them. Faith rest drill. Faith rest drill means that God has given us various promises and principles in his word, and we're implementing them. We say, God says, but pray without ceasing, so I've got to pray, so I'm going to make prayer a priority in my life, so I'm going to arrange my schedule, so I have a set prayer time every single day. I also need to know God's word. The psalmist said, if I, uh, that I hide God's word in my heart, that I won't sin against him. So I need to learn and memorize the word of God. So I have to set aside a time every single day when I'm going to read the Bible, I'm going to pray, and so I have to organize my life around that schedule because if I'm not doing that, then I'm going to dry up and blow away as a Christian. My spiritual life will atrophy and I will be useless and miserable. So the faith rest drill focuses on learning God's word because that's what we believe. It's not just some sort of general, formless, or amorphous faith where we're just saying, oh, I'm just going to trust God. Well, how? In what sense? For what specifically? What promise are we going to claim? Read through the Bible. Underline promises. Think about them. Uh, listen to the, the uh, lessons on uh, on uh, Bible study methods, because that's one of the things that I'm teaching in that series is how to read your Bible and understand it. And everybody can understand. God didn't write it so that it was some kind of a closed book that only uh, pastors could get into. You know, there's a real misconception among a lot of people that somehow if you have the gift of pastor-teacher, you can just open the Bible and you'll know what it means. The gift of pastor teacher, let me see, it's, if you look at the imagery, they're leadership and communication gifts. That's what pastoring and teaching is. It's a leadership and communication gift. It's not an, a knowledge acquisition gift. Pay attention to that. That's really important because a lot of people have gotten into some kind of really confusing mysticism and think, oh, pastors just automatically know the truth. And that's just garbage. Uh, the gift of evangelist is somebody who can communicate the gospel clearly, but he has to learn it. Anybody can learn the gospel. Anybody can be an evangelist. Anybody can be a teacher. Some are gifted at it, but anybody can communicate and teach. Some are gifted at it, but everybody has to learn the Bible. Uh, the gift of pastor-teacher, the gift of evangelist, are not gifts of learning. They're gifts of communication of what one has learned. So don't get the idea that you can't really learn the Bible. All you're doing is telling yourself that God told you to do something you can't really do, and so you're just going to uh, give up and quit and sit and listen to a pastor and and basically truncate your Christian life. And I don't want you to do that to yourself. You need how to learn to read the Bible. Underline promises uh, that are promises to you, not promises to Israel, not promises to somebody else, but promises for church-age believers. And many promises in the Old Testament relate to principles for the church-age, so it's not just restricted to the New Testament. We have to learn those promises. Grace orientation means we have to understand that just as we are saved by grace through faith, we also live the Christian life on the basis of grace. And that is so important. It involves humility. We have to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt us. Humility is the key to being able to learn anything. Because when the word of God says that you're doing something wrong, if you don't have humility, then you're just going to get mad at God and close your Bible and leave church. 
uh, humility is necessary to learn and to grow and to respond to the reproof and correction of God's Word. So that's all part of grace orientation. But if you don't understand grace, you'll never be able to love anybody because love is based upon grace. Grace means that that the way we treat people is not based upon who they are or what they do. It's based upon some higher system of absolutes or values. And so grace is related to love. If you don't understand grace, you can't love. And then doctrinal orientation, you'll note that I put the same uh, key verse there for both of those, Second Peter 3.18, which states that, <clears throat> that we are to grow by the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So grace orientation means that we orient our thinking to the grace of God and we deal with others and with ourselves on the basis of God's grace. Doctrinal orientation means that we're changing the, the structure of our thinking and our life to fit the structure of God's Word and what God says in His Word and how God teaches us. So that we're orienting our life to the teaching of God's Word, we're orienting our life and our attitudes to the grace of God, and all of that is built upon the fact that we are trusting in God's Word day by day, moment in moment by moment. So faith really underscores all of these dynamics. We exercise faith when we say, I believe First John 1, 9, that if I confess my sin, God's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm exercising faith moment by moment as I walk by means of the Holy Spirit. So faith undergirds all of this. So faith is a great word to summarize spiritual childhood as we're learning to master faith. Now, as we grow, growth is, is sporadic. You just look at a child, and, and they develop in some areas faster than they develop in other areas. And, different, and Christians are different. Nobody follows the same set pattern. Everybody grows and fits and starts, and it depends upon where you are. Somebody comes into this congregation now, they're going to learn different doctrines and different aspects of the Christian life than if they had come nine or ten years ago. And if they'd come nine or ten years ago, there would have been a focus on other things, and they would they would have developed in one area without developing in another area, uh, and so it changes. So it's it's not set, it's not concrete, it's it's dynamic, it's it's different. We grow a little faster here, a little slower here, then we grow faster there, and that's the process. This is just sort of describing a logical approach to how growth takes place and the different elements of it. So the um, Next area is where we advance into spiritual adolescence, and the key word there is hope. The key word is hope. Faith is spiritual infancy. Hope characterizes uh, characterizes spiritual adolescence. What happens as you watch a young person grow up, moving from childhood to adulthood, one of the keys for describing maturity is the ability to postpone gratification. A child wants to have what it wants now. But as you move through adolescence, you learn that you're not going to satisfy or gratify all of your desires and wishes right now, that some things have to be postponed and some things you have to work for, and it will take a lot of time before you get there. Uh, there's a process involved. So all of a sudden you begin to think in terms of a long-term plan. When you're a child, you have no concept of time. 
20, 30, 40 years down the road does, it does, it doesn't mean anything to you. As you grow through adolescence, time begins to take on a new, a new sense for us and we realize that, that we're working for the long term. We're working for something that, uh, where the benefits will not really be ours for 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road. And the same is true in the Christian life. Hope is a key word for spiritual adolescence because we learn to think in terms of where God is taking us, the long-term plan that God has for us, so that we have a confident expectation of what uh, God is doing. A key passage for this is uh, Romans 5, 3 through 5, where Paul says not only not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Now, an infant doesn't have a good time when they're going through adversity. They just cry and they whine. And uh, in terms of a, of, a, of a physical infant, they pretty much mess their diapers a lot, which is comparable to just a lot of carnality and sin, uh, because we don't like unhappiness. We don't like unpleasantness. And so when there's adversity, Adversity, we just get all self-absorbed and want to have a little temper tantrum, just like a baby. But as we grow, we begin to understand that difficulties, adversity is part of God's plan, and that God is going to take us through those tribulations, those adversities, those difficulties, in order to teach us that we can rely upon God, that we can trust him, the faith rests real, and God's going to pull through for us, and that the principles of God's word actually work. So we come to glory and tribulations because we know something. We've come to learn something, doctrinal orientation, because we know that tribulation produces uh, perseverance, hupobonates, endurance, and endurance character. This is the development of spiritual adolescence and the character qualities of Christ in terms of the fruit of the spirits. And character produces hope. Hope is that long, long-term focus on what God is doing. And hope doesn't disappoint because the love of God, that is the love from God, God's grace has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit given to us. Now, here's a little graphic I developed uh, describing this. There are tribulations we go through, which is thlipsis, and we go through this pressure and this adversity, and we have to stick with it, hupomone. We have to stick with it. We learn to trust God, trust God, trust God, not trust God, rebound, uh, confess our sins, get back in fellowship, recover the fumble, uh, move forward, persevere, persevere, fail, recover the fumble, keep going, moving forward. Then this develops character. This is proof or evidence in the scripture. Dokimazo is the term that's used, or dokimion is the noun that indicates a proven or tested character. Uh, and then that leads to the development of hope, our confident expectation, where we can begin to live today in light of eternity. Now, this takes us into that next development of spiritual adolescence, referred to as young men by John in 1 John 2.13. Uh, this is hope that is a focus on the future, living today in light of eternity. It's our personal sense of our eternal destiny. We know that God is training us for a future role to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. And so we can handle the difficulties, the traumas, these adversities and disappointments today because we know that if we pass the test, if we grow as believers and we uh, and the Holy Spirit produces maturity in us, then we're going to be ready for that future role in the eternal kingdom. 
So hope just represents getting through spiritual adolescence where we quit living for today and we start living in light of eternity. Then as we're developing hope all through this time, we've been learning more and more about God. We've learned more about his grace. We've more learned more about who he is. We've learned more about his character. And as we do that, we fall more and more in love. We develop love, a true, enduring, deep love for God. And so this covers the, the adult stage of our spiritual life. And Jesus uh, said it this way in Matthew twenty two thirty seven that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, uh, mind, uh, uh, with everything that we have. The idea in Deuteronomy six five is with everything that we've got. First John two five says, "Whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is." perfected or matured in him so that love the love for god isn't just something static it it begins in spiritual infancy and it matures but it comes to that mature level of deep adult love when we go we've seen god come through for us in multiple trials and tests and this characterizes uh our uh, our mature christian life but it's that love for God then that becomes the motivation for our spiritual life to love one another. Jesus said in John thirteen thirty four and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now see, God's love for us teaches us and in uh, about his grace. That in turn produces love for God, that then motivates our love for one another. And this is the evidence that we are truly disciples or learners, is we have love for one another. Uh, <clears throat> and so this this develops from our hope. So we have uh, love for God, personal love for God in Romans 5.5. 5. Uh, this develops... Uh, we are to love one another. Galatians uh, 5.14, we're to have that love for one, for one another. I call it an impersonal love for all mankind or an unconditional love. And the reason we use the word impersonal is because, not because it's somehow cold and detached, because that's just completely contradictory to the concept of love. But personal means that you have a personal knowledge or acquaintance with the person that you're loving. Impersonal means you don't have a personal knowledge of that person. It could be the checkout clerk at the store. It could be the customer service rep on the telephone. It could be the person who really who got his driver's license at at, 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 at Sears and Roebuck or uh, Walmart who's, who's driving erratically on the freeway and irritating you. You don't know who these people are, but we're to deal with them in, in love. And that doesn't mean stupidity. That means dealing with them in love as the Bible defines love. And then third, uh, occupation with Christ, our focus upon Christ, Hebrews 2, two. These are three different aspects of love. Love for God motivates our love for one another. Love for God increases our understanding of God's plan, our focus upon Christ, our occupation with Christ. And so these three all work together in tandem, and the result of all of that is that our joy and our happiness in the midst of adversity and difficulty is enhanced and increases. And so the level of our joy as a fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy is the second category, 
And that represents something about our spiritual maturity. So you can use that as sort of a barometer on where you are. And if you don't think you're where you should be, should be, then that's nobody's fault but your own, and you're really not doing and applying the Word of God as you should. Now, we're going to come back. This is a great summary time. We're going to come back and go over these things again, but we're going to see them implemented in First Thessalonians because this is what's behind Paul's praise of the Thessalonians as he says, you became imitators of us and of Christ. And this is evidence, what we're going to see in verse 4, of their election. So we've got to come back and deal with that concept as well. But I wanted to get this there as a framework for us to use as we go through First uh, Thess chapter 1. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded of, of the skills we need to be developing in the Christian life, that we can be going forward and maturing and developing, and that we might uh, realize that, that the ultimate goal is for us to be like Christ and to have his character dominate in our lives. And we pray that you might challenge us to press on in spiritual growth and maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.